Only Three Lads is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family, home to some of the best music podcasts on the planet. Visit PantheonPodcast.com to discover more. And if you like what we do on O3L, we kindly ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. It really helps us more than you know. Welcome to the Only Three Lads podcast. Thank you for joining us. Of course, we take you back to some of the best days of your life as we take a look at the golden age of alternative music from 1974 to 1999. I'm Uncle Greg. Of course, we have the PhD of music, Brett Vargo. Hey. And the ambassador of love, Bueno. Hey, how's it going, guys? Of course, with this being our second year, though, we have a very special guest. We have Dick Shepard. Today, Ooh, on the cool. Only Three Lads podcast, Uncle of course, Uncle. everyone, yes, better known as Richard Blade, Mr. Blade, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. You can always introduce me as Dick Shepard. I'm, I'm proud of that little guy who's the <laughs> DJ in Europe. <laughs> well, that's, that's what happened. You were in Europe, then you came over here because uh, you were Dick Shepard at the radio station you were over there. Somebody else had the name Richard, and then you get over here, and uh, you came up with I think you were supposed to be Richard Runner at first is the story I heard. And then That's what correct. happened? Yes. Well, uh, the newspaper folded over on itself. I was actually on the air at K-Rock uh, my very first day and just getting ready to go onto the microphone. And I'd left KNAC, a very small station, uh, limited by a signal that uh, the FCC only allowed it to go, you know, about five or six miles up and down the coast. And I left on good terms. And naively, I thought, I don't want to steal any listeners away as uh, Dick Shepard. So I wanted to go back to Richard. And I thought, I'll think of a new last name. And everyone else on the station had, you know, crazy names like Jed the Fish and Freddie Snakeskin, Dusty Street, Sam Freeze and stuff like that. So I was thinking, I got to have a cool name. And uh, I was flipping through the newspaper and it said opening in two weeks, Blade Runner. And I went, oh, that sounds cool, Richard runner i can do the i can rip off the rolls royce logo ah uh, ah uh, and everything like that and then uh, i put the paper down on the ground as is k-rock you just threw things on the ground anyway and uh <laughs> i opened the microphone and i just froze it was like oh my gosh you know everyone in the world is listening right now and i went i'm richard and i couldn't remember runner and i looked down and the paper had folded and the runner part was folded under, and it, I could just see Blade. So I went, I'm Richard Blade. And then <laughs> there it is. Wow. <laughs> the story, how you got your name. That so is fantastic. Awesome. That is awesome. And most importantly, Dick Shepard was also on Card Sharks. That's right. I was. It won a couple of thousand dollars. I was thrilled with that. And uh, Goodson Topman, the uh, producers behind Card Sharks, brought me in uh, a number of times, actually, afterwards to do pilots for them after I was Richard Blade. And I did uh, a pilot for them for um, a show called Girls Talk, which they used the, um, you know, the Dave Edmonds song as their theme. And it was back right. when everyone was sliming everyone on Nickelodeon, you know, so you went on. <laughs> they gave I don't know. Suit. Yeah, but it was a kid's show, you know. And then uh, I was also um, on when they brought back uh, The Love Connection. They had me do oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a, a non-airing pilot of The Love Connection um, uh, with Chuck Barris. And it was that was fun because the girl who picked me was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that the king of all media, that title's already taken, so I think you should be the El Jefe of all media, Mr. Blade, because you have film, you have TV, you have radio, you have satellite, you're an author, you do it all now, and you've done it all for a very long time. Well, thank oh, you yes. so much. I just like, I like keeping busy, you know, it keeps me, uh, keeps my, my brain going. I'm just writing and finishing, uh, well, I've written it, I'm just going through the editing process of my fifth book right now. My wow. fourth is ready to go. Uh, it was uh, going to be released right incredible. before Christmas, but it's based on a true story. So we're just getting the legal points uh, of that because of the people involved, make sure everyone's covered. And if not, what names do we need to change? Um, but in the interim, I've just finished my fifth one, which is a huge action uh, piece called Ghosts of the Congo that'll be out this summer 
And, uh, you know, I'm really excited uh, editing that because I get to see it in my eyes, like a 16-9 movie, as they say, you know, 16-9 being the aspect ratio. And I I get to see all this, you know, coming alive in front of my face. Like It's just so much fun. I get lost in it. Well, because you've also written uh, episodes of TV shows, a sci-fi show, uh, also a Lifetime movie. You write nonfiction, of course, with your book, World in My Eyes, which was a great book. It's like but uh, a lot of pictures, uh, over 500 pages. If you are a big fan of any classic alternative music, you got to get that book. Absolutely. I hadn't read a book in 20 years, and I I couldn't put that thing down. It was, it was a real a cathartic thing for me to write. Um, when I got approached by the publisher initially, he said, you know, can you write a couple of chapters? So I, I wrote, uh, I think, the Spandau chapter and a Depeche Mode chapter and sent him that. And he, they said, okay, well, we'll publish this. And so I started writing individual chapters and I stopped and I thought, nope, I'm going to start at the beginning and I'm just going to go through. And I remember I got to about page 300 and I said to my wife, I said, I'm going to have to stop this. Otherwise, it's going to end up being war and peace. You know, it was just, you know, I stopped it in, in the year 2000. It was still over 500 pages. But, um, you know, I, I thought I had to tell the early part of the story because uh, when all the biographies and memoirs that I've read, whether it's Billy Idol, whether it's uh, Stuart Copeland, whether it's Thomas Dalby, whoever it is, I find the most interesting parts are before they're well-known or in their cases, you know, super famous, because at that point, you know what happened with the police. So, you know, what happened with Billy Idol, because, you know, we all grew up listening to their music. And with my story, I thought, no, I I think I have to tell the early years. And uh, everyone so responded to that. They seem to love the uh, European days and traveling up and down the continent and DJing in the clubs and then coming over to America and being turned down everywhere. People kind of relate to that. I think we've all, you know, faced our own tribulations. Well, that's what I was talking about. I started an alternative radio in Phoenix in 1993. Everybody knew who Richard Blade was. You are the template of all alternative radio stations of having any Englishman on the air, usually during the middays. And that's exactly what we had here in Phoenix also, all because of you. Yeah, you should get residuals. No, I should. You know, I find that <laughs> yeah. very flattering. And it's it's funny because when the flashback lunch was first come up with kind of thing, um, it was forced on me. Uh, and I said, okay, you know, but I'll, I'll make the best of it. And they really put it together to get rid of the 80s music on K-Rock. They were kind of done with it at the time. They thought, oh, we'll just stick it in one hour and it'll go away. And of course, it became super popular. And because of the ratings, it just literally exploded in the 90-day period where Arbitron was uh, coming out with the book. And when it came out, literally, suddenly, all these stations that followed K-Rock, because it was a, such an influential radio station, started putting on their own flashback lunch. And I remember the program director at the time, Andy Schoen, going, why the hell didn't we copyright that? You know, it was, it was because they put it on as a joke because they hated the 80s, you know, and I was the only one who said, no, I think this could work. I, I love the music, you know, but at the time they were all wearing their plaid shirts and swearing that Soundgarden was the next, you know, greatest thing since the Beatles. So uh, yeah. they, they ignored Depeche Mode and uh, Duran Duran. Huge mistake. Huge mistake. Huge mistake. Yeah. But see, I think back in the 80s, there were so many record labels. There was so much more out there. People were more willing to take chances today what there's like what three labels and so it's majors yeah yeah just the same stuff it sounds like i'm gonna sound like an old guy because this music still lives 40 years later we're still talking about our favorite songs of 1982 are we gonna be talking about our you know uh, favorite songs of 2012 30 years from now i don't know no, but you know there are a couple of really good artists out there um oh sure I, i love Billie eilish and i love her brother phineas and mm-hmm. also, believe it or not, I mean, who would have thought that he would come from a boy band and be really good? But Harry Styles. Harry oh, Styles. Harry Styles. He's got some chops. Absolutely. Yeah. His, his two solo albums are actually fantastic. They, they are. They really are. And, I, you know, that's not just what I listen to. I listen to Brazilian jazz as well, believe it or not. My all-time favorite song on the entire planet is Sergio Mendes in Brazil 66 doing Masconada. Oh, oh. George A. Benson. Yeah, yes. d- don't get it confused with the Black Eyed Peas version of it. I'm talking about the original. It's it's 
And to me, that's got everything. I don't understand what it's about. I don't speak Portuguese, but it's just got such an uplifting beat to it. It makes any time it comes on, my wife goes, honey, your song's on. And, uh, you know, we just <laughs> dance around in the kitchen to it. We love it. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm a huge Brazilian music nut, and that is uh, just an amazing song. If you're not familiar, a song written by Caetano Veloso uh, and sung by Gal Costa called Baby. No, I don't know. That. One of the most beautiful songs ever written. Check that out. Oh, I will. I've got uh, a, a lot of Brazilian jazz on my uh, iPod. And when I when I travel, I put my headphones in and I either put on Ibiza Chill, you know, chill out music yep. that they would play in the Balearic Islands, or I put on Brazilian jazz and I'm just gone. I just, uh, it, to me, it's, uh, it's just so different to uh, what I play the rest of the time. I love it. Well, I got to tell you what a thrill this is, Richard, because I, I grew up with you. Now I'm 46 now, so I'm kind of the young buck on the show. But as a kid and an early teenager growing up in the L.A. market, I mean, you were everything. I mean, you were so influential hearing you on K-Rock and then watching you on TV. So my brothers and I, we had our after school routine. First, we turn on video one. I, I think it was on channel nine. I believe. Yes, you are correct. All right. Then we'd go over to PBS and we'd watch Degrassi Junior High on Channel 28. <laughs> and then we'd go to Channel 56 and watch Wally George for some reason. Because mm -hmm. it was just so ridiculous and outrageous. And I think probably the, uh, uh, the Monkees reruns factored in somewhere in there. But you are a huge part of my youth. So I am so happy you are here today. I was privileged to be a part of it and, uh, you know, to be able to do those video shows in Southern California and in quite a few other markets uh, around the States was just a, a wonderful thing. I loved it. And uh, I had uh, a really good friend who's uh, still great friends with him um, who did the music with me, a guy called Peter Facer. And we would go through all the videos and we put them together and we had such a free hand. And like on Thursdays on video one, we did dance day where we would play uh, all the black music and R and B tracks that MTV wouldn't play. And uh, we just, just love putting the show together. It was a, just such a wonderful moment in time. Richard, were you ever approached by MTV to maybe become the second part? You know, when they, uh, about 85, when they got rid of those first run of VJs, were you ever approached to go to MTV? I actually was. Uh, I tried in 81. I was in Bakersfield and I heard they were starting and uh, I got this thing in the like the trade magazines in uh, the January of 81 and sent a tape in and heard absolutely nothing. Just crickets. <laughs> nothing. And then uh, I got approached uh, in late 84, beginning of 85. And my agent was also Nina Blackwood's agent. Mm. And uh, he told me not to do it. He said they don't pay enough. He said, for what you will make in New York, uh, you're not going to have a lifestyle anything like Los Angeles. He said, they're paying around 60 to 70,000 at the most. And in New York, you know, an apartment, but even back then was, right. you know, a one room apartment was nearly $2,000. He said, wow. it's, it's uh, a month, you know, he said, it's going to be, and then the weather as well, you know, crappy. He said, uh, don't do it. And Nina um, had been approached to do, I think it was, Prell is a, is a shampoo. I think it was Prell. Uh, and she was going to be a spokesperson for Prell. And they were bending over backwards to get her. They said, you know, you, you can do it any way you want. You can have Nina Blackwood or Nina Blackwood from MTV. If MTV wants to do it, we'll even put the MTV logo in all the network commercials and uh, all the magazine print. Or we can, you know, completely uh, not even mention MTV. It's entirely up to you guys, but we're thrilled to have her. And MTV said, nope. We've got her exclusive. You can't use her. And uh, she was offered at the time, I was told, $250,000, wow. which, you know, back in 84 was, uh, you know, the equivalent of like $2 million today. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you know, they turned it down and said, no, we, we own her. You can't do it. And they wouldn't so, let her get the gravy on the side. It was all just, nope. we own you and we're going to, you know, that's right. Squeeze that turnip as much as we can. That's right. That's what my wow. agent told me. He said, that's so all your side gigs, everything like that has to be run through and approved by MTV. So, you know, when you're doing an MTV gig, whether it's, you know, like the equivalent of the US Festival or Live Aid or, or some, you know, Beach House, whatever it's going to be, they'll fly you out there, they'll put you up in a nice hotel, they'll do all that, but you're not going to make money. 
you know, Howard Stern talks about this on the air. He says, the worst thing is if you're famous with no money, no money. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, then you're walking around and everyone thinks that you're rich and going, hey, give me some money. And you're like, I don't have any. And that's the situation uh, in, in New York for those guys for a while that uh, everyone was recognizing them and thinking that they should be riding around in limos. But in fact, no, they had to take the subway with everybody else because <laughs> they're on a budget. So uh, I would love to love to have been part of MTV in the earliest days. Um, but once K-Rock came along, I, I was much happier staying there than going out to New York. But you know what? Like in my neighborhood, we didn't get cable until probably the mid to late 80s. So mm -hmm. you were a gateway for the rest of us to discover a lot of music that we may not have heard or videos we may not have seen otherwise. You're absolutely right. Uh, in Los Angeles, there was only two areas that had cable. I think it was La Cañada, Flint Ridge was one, and I forget the other one. And uh, everywhere else, because there wasn't cable laid at the time, if you were on broadcast TV, that was it. You know, it's fantastic. It's not like today where no one even watches CBS or NBC or anything like yeah. that. Uh, you know, back then it was everything was broadcast. I don't know if you saw the latest uh, year end ratings for, for example, CBS, which normally is dominant. But back yep. in um, the 80s, they would have a, a rate, an average rating for a nighttime show of about 30, which means 30 percent of the, you know, the audience in America watching TV would be tuned to it. And uh, a big show like, you know, Who Shot JR would get uh, a 50 the average rating for CBS for, two th uh, for 2020 was 0.9. Wow. wow. I know that's like that's nothing. Abysmal. That's abysmal. That's crazy. I, I can roll down the window in my car and yell out and more people <laughs> will hear me. <laughs> well, I don't watch TV either. I stream, but I listen to a lot of music. So I'm finding my entertainment a different way. And to that's why sports is so big on TV, because that's the one thing that people will come for that appointment because the game starts at this time. Otherwise, they DVR it or they just stream it somewhere else at some other time. Absolutely. I mean, sports is one thing that's almost immune from it because you want to watch it, you know, and you watch the Super Bowl. You don't care what teams are playing, really. It's just the spectacle of it. But don't you find if you do watch TV that if you try and watch a network drama and then you watch something that's being streamed and made for Netflix or Amazon or Hulu, the difference is night and day. It's it's yes. like yep. all the talent has left broadcast and gone to um, streaming. It's it's crazy. Absolutely. I think that with broadcast TV is that there are certain standards that they have to adhere to. But, you know, take a look at something like The Sopranos. You know, they could have it real and gritty and cuss and all that other kind of things. Yeah, that it's, it's almost no like rules. a movie. Yeah, so mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's like better. the Only Three Lads podcast. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we try the not Sopranos to cuss. The Sopranos of podcasts, of yes. <laughs> We try uh, not to go into the gutter too much. A, a perfect example of that is The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Which is yes. one of the, the, you know, the best things of 2020. That could never have been sold to broadcast because I could just imagine walking into a room with all those executives looking at you, thinking they know everything. And they'd say, so uh, what's your pitch? And you go, well, it's about a young girl who plays chess and it's set in the 60s. And they would look at you and they go, what else do you have? <laughs> Next. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's just amazing. And I think it's going to sweep uh, all of the awards this year. I think it's just incredible. And also superheroes. I don't know if anyone's seen The Boys out there on Amazon. Mm -hmm. But, no. oh, my no. goodness, what a show. That reinvents the superhero genre in a way that you've never seen and with language you've never heard on uh, television. I mean, they use the C word. You know, oh. as as we would use the word the or and, wow. no you know, in way. every sentence. But it's it's incredible. My wife hates superheroes, loved the boys. I mean, it's incredible. Huh. You get that's a must hey, watch. Checking that one out on Prime. You'll, you'll love it. Watch it from episode one. Season one It's brilliant. The boys. Hey, okay. yeah, right. the boys. Richard, you started at K-Rock in June of 1982. We're there to 2000. You, you, were at, you took some time off with writing. And then in 2005, you got to Sirius. You've almost been at Sirius as long, you, as, long as you were at K-Rock. And yeah. what do you think? I mean, you've really seen the music business change, entertainment change. Uh, what's, what do you think the entertainment and music will be in the future 
because you're one of the experts. Oh, I wish I knew that. I am I am the worst at looking into the future. You know, don't ever don't ever follow me. You know, we'll let, we'll both end up getting lost. Um, I, I I just don't know. I mean, it, everything is changing so rapidly. And uh, with the arrival of 5G, which will give people, you know, the basic uh, access to the Internet everywhere because it's so much faster than uh, regular phone lines. So if you, you're not connected to a cable or something, you can actually use your phone as a, an Internet hub and be able to stream and pull in music, pull in shows and everything like that. I think it's going to change everything. And I think Elon Musk is putting up satellites to make sure that everyone uh, around the globe is going to be able to get the internet when that happens. Uh, I, who knows where it's going to go? I just would not want to be the owner of a terrestrial radio station right now because yeah. I think that would be the, the, the one of the hardest things to uh, make a living at. Well, I still work in terrestrial radio. I work at yeah. a news radio station. So I'm do, like a KFI there in LA with you. Right. So and I'm the news guy on the weekdays. Sorry, Greg. Just trying to see where I got to go. But Greg, I have, I'm not happy about it because I'm a child of radio. You know, Me too, I'm, yeah. su Me I'm too. surprised how quickly it's all changed. I mean, it, it was, it's ridiculous. Um, I mean, when I started with Sirius, we had 234,000 subscribers total. That was it. And now we've got 36.5 million subscribers. Wow. And uh, the new podcast company they bought last year is the uh, biggest one in the world. And, I mean, that's all part of the app. And it's crazy. And with the SiriusXM app, outside of the subscribers, now I, I don't think there's – I might be wrong. might be wrong. But I don't think there's a global lockout. So I will get people posting on my Facebook page asking for songs from uh, Australia and from Japan and Singapore and from Argentina because they're listening on the app. And that's, you know, before most of the listeners were in North America, Canada and the U.S., and then uh, quite a few in the Caribbean who would listen on Dish Network. But now it's it's everywhere. And, wow, these, these people that run the companies, these big companies, whether it's Sirius, whether it's Amazon, uh, whatever it is, they, they are so you know, focused on the future and bringing it to us is crazy. It's awesome how it's globalized everything, but to the same degree, I mean, you kind of miss some of the regional differences. I mean, between not only nations, but I mean, in America, you would have a song that may have been a hit in LA, but it, it went nowhere in New York or Chicago or whatever. I kind of miss that. Oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, I agree a hundred percent. I think one of the worst things, it, it all started with the dere deregulation of radio back in the late 80s uh, under Ronald Reagan. And it's really sad because the, you know, mom and pop stations were the farm system for radio. That's where they, you know, the great newscasters, great DJs came out of. And today, um, radio stations in Los Angeles and New York just voice track their personalities all across the the mm -hmm. uh, country and just drop in their own call letters. Right. And so you, if you're growing up in Des Moines, the odds of you getting onto a radio station are slim to none. And uh, that's so sad because w what's going to happen to the talent? It's just going to, it's just going to dry up. And the people in terrestrial radio don't realize what they're doing. They're, they're cutting off their own throats, you know, because they're stopping this, this growth to come into terrestrial radio. And if, if you take away the influx of new blood, then uh, you've got you've got nothing. It's once people start leaving, then you, you what are you going to do? It's the same voice, the same songs everywhere. It's just homogenized. Well, that's, yeah. you know, Richard, you're exactly right, because live and local is gone. And where mm -hmm. we grew up and we had our favorite DJs and we would box and we would knuckle up because, um, you know, I listen to this radio station and you would maybe explain to somebody what type of person your friend is. Oh, he's a KZZP guy. He's a KUPD guy. He's a K-Rock guy. But kids don't have that now. They don't have that connection. And we don't have that common connection of listening to that first uh, new Depeche Mode song at the same time. We did that in the 90s. I remember that, like, the world premiere of the new music. And so I think it's harder to get new music out because if you stay in your bubble, it's kind of hard to find what's out there. Like, you know, you would wait for your favorite song on your radio station, but then you would hear all this new stuff, and that might become your next favorite song. So it just Absolutely. seems like it's, it's so different out there now. Well, we talked about that last week, too, on our Best of 2020 episode, how, you know, things have become so homogenous and it's it's 
There's McDonald's. a lot of great music being released, but it's a lot tougher to find it. You really have to be an explorer and, and seek it out, which I love doing, by the way. But I mean, it's certainly not readily available for you if you turn your dial to, to 91X or even K-Rock. No, now. absolutely. I, I, I don't know. I turn my dial to Richard Blade when I <laughs> want to hear new music. That's for sure. Well, my buddy uh, Ray, who's always had uh, record stores, vinyl stores, still does to this day. He used to call me up at K-Rock and he'd say, I just got the imports in from England. I've got the brand new one from Depeche Mode. I'm driving over right now. And I would, back then you could do anything you wanted. So I would get on the air and, and this would be, particularly with Depeche Mode and The Cure and bigger bands, even into the 90s, I would say, I got the brand new one from Depeche Mode coming in. It should be here in about 35 to 45 minutes, depending on traffic. Wow. So stay tuned. <laughs> and Ray would walk that. in and we would play the record on the air without listening to it. We'd all listen to it at the same time. And uh, it, it, to, it was such a communal experience. Then we'd start taking the calls and people say, oh, that's great. That was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we'd, you know, quite often, particularly in the 80s, flip it over and play the B-side because Depeche Mode uh, were very famous for having great B-sides. Yes. And then you flip over and you've got flexible on the back. It's, it's incredible. Um, but that... I think that has gone now. If you put a record on without getting approval oh. from uh, the pro, you'd, they'd be like, unplug your headphones and leave. Oh yeah. They, they, they freak out. When I started Richard, what I was told is what would you do if you weren't afraid? That's what I was told. And we got your back mm. and don't worry. Have, you know, now it's when in doubt, take it out. It used to be, I think that, you know, the emotional connection that you had with your audience, there's a craft in that. And when these bean counters, took over radio, the corporations, they said, how can we cut costs? And that was taking out the craft because everyone mm. knows, you know, I, I, I think people can see the science. You can read that in a book, but the art of radio is what's being lost with these corporations and with that voice tracking and with not being, being able to talk to the DJ and learning about new music and, you know, building that emotional connection. That's what's gone with radio right now on the terrestrial side, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. You, you said it beautifully. That's 100% correct. And the one thing about Carroll, when Rick, Rick Carroll would hire us, he wanted regular people. He didn't want fake voices on the air or anything like that. And he also allowed us to have our own tastes. So if you listen to Dusty Street in the evening, Dusty was playing, you know, Bauhaus and Susie. That was her thing. You know, she got into Shriek Back. She loved uh, that. Yeah. And if you listen to Jed the Fish, he was playing Oingo Boingo and he was playing Devo. And if you listen to Freddie Snakeskin, he was on his choices. He would flash back, believe it or not. And in between Duran Duran and Depeche Mode, he would be playing things like James Brown and Wilson yeah. Pickett yeah, just, to, just to mess with people. And it was such a unique moment in time because you honestly didn't know what was going to be next. Whereas most radio stations, if you listen to them for about three or four hours, you've got a good idea what the next song's going to be or the next two songs because you, they've already played them 90 minutes before. Same hundred songs in a playlist. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the boss sound and the boss town with the playlist my boss gave me to play. That's exactly yeah, what it's yeah. turned into. That's a, oh, yep. Oh, I mean, I long for the way how it used to be with radio where you did have the interaction and, you know, you could talk about, I mean, it's like you get the dust on your hands and you're with your family. You're hanging out with your friends playing records and that's what's lost. Now it's just a jukebox and it's super safe because nobody wants any controversy because controversy is what used to fuel radio. You would have the morning guy and the afternoon guy you know, they would be friends on the weekend, but during the week they would have wars on air and they hated each other. And it just caused that controversy. You would see, you know, bits like that, but none of that, that's all gone. It's just kind of like craft is all gone. Yeah. Who's your rival, Greg? I, well, no, I didn't really, I, I never had to do that. When I did my afternoon show, everyone got along pretty well. And we had, uh, Dave Pratt was the morning guy. So Dave Pratt, I was working on his show. That's how I got the afternoon show. And, um, so we never had anything like that, but it was, it was just one of those bits that, you know, on the weekend you'd get together. Okay. I'm going to say this and you say that it just always like radio thrived on controversy. And what's the last thing in the world, any corporation wants controversy, controversy. Mm, so yeah. <laughs> on every radio station. i know it gives no incentive for the listeners to have to tune in whereas right. before you had to tune in you felt if you missed a day at k-rock then you felt that you were out of the loop 
and it was one of those things that people had to tune in and listen. And now there's there's none of that. Richard, do you find that satellite, Sirius XM, gives you the freedom to still do that? Absolutely. The, the great thing about it is, particularly uh, over the last few years, uh, I work out of my home studio where I am right now. And I have complete access to uh, when I log in, I, I it's very secure how you log in, including with a, a rolling code as your mm-hmm. third and final one. You have 60 seconds to change to log wow. in before. Uh, and <laughs> we have the same thing know, at all stations now. Yeah. Oh, you, okay, cool. Yeah. And then, so I have complete access to all of the music and I can delete, I can add, I can move things around. So uh, when I ask for people to reach out to me on social media, then uh, they'll ask for a particular song and it will pop up like uh, at the beginning of uh, today's show. Uh, I had one for um, Dead or Alive right at the beginning. It just came in and I thought, why not start the show with that? And I can refer back to last night's Saturday night safety dance because it was up tempo and fun. And this guy just asked for it. And I did that. And man, about five, five seconds later, he tweeted, I can't believe you read my tweet yeah. on the air. Thank you so much. You know, <laughs> and that that's great. But so much radio is just, you can, you can almost feel that it was taped three days before, you know, and that's so mm. sad. Well, also they got a lot of guys from college, you know, they're, it's kind of like, um, people would always say, Oh, you know what? I listen to radio. So let me tell you how to do your business. So you got mm. a lot of those guys, these uh, guys who went to business school and then they come out and they're like, Oh, well, here's how I'm going to run this radio station. And they don't know poop about poop. You know, they don't know yeah. anything about building an audience. They don't know how to connect emotionally. Again, they, they, they've learned the science or, you know, they learned from their bosses or through the ivory towers. Here's how we do it. But they completely miss the art and they don't even get that. Used to be an old saying, a consultant is someone who borrows your watch to tell you what time it is. <laughs> exactly. uh, I can. Uh, All right. Well, hey, this week we're taking a look at Richard Blade's flashback favorite series. That was a CD series. Came out in 1993. I think it was October 8th, 1993 to be exact when that first volume came out. You Um, did your homework, Greg. I I better believe I did. Now, it really was better than all the 80 other, you know, compilations out there because Richard's taste in music and his his expertise and his credibility. But I think that one of the best things, Richard, about your series was the liner notes because that they were excellent and really just took it over the top. Oh, well, thank you so much. I, I put a lot of work into the liner notes and I would drive um, my buddy Carl from Olio Records crazy because he'd go, dude, the deadline was yesterday. Oh, <laughs> I promise it'll be finished. It'll be finished tomorrow. Oh, you, it better be. I'm holding it. You know, and it was uh, it was always fun. But uh, I, I loved doing them and it would always flatter me so much when I walk into a club to DJ and see them up on the wall and then have the DJ look at me and go, could you sign these for me? I'm like, dude, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. I'm thrilled. So what was the selection process for those discs? What would happen is Carl, uh, Carl Capriolio, and he shortened his name to Olio for the record comp- record label that he oh. started, Olio Records. Uh, he would come to me and say, all right, we're going to do another. At first, it was just going to be one. We're just going to do flashback favorites. That was it. Uh, but it sold so well that he said, OK, we've got a commitment from Capital and Sony to do a series. So uh, come to me with 40 songs that you like, and then I will take them to legal, as he would say, uh, to their legal department, and they will get clearance and see which ones we can clear, which ones we can't clear. Depeche Mode, we can never clear, for example. Uh, so I would give him a whole list of songs and they would come back and say, all right, we've got 17 of them cleared. We've got room on the CD for 12. Pick 12 of these 17. And so uh, then I had to, you know, pare down and get those 12. And then uh, we would work out a rough running order. And then I then we were off, you know, off to the races. And I would start doing the liner notes. But that was the same for each one. It was always, you know, give me 30 or 40 songs and let's see what legal comes back with. Oh, oh, yeah. That's why they're not available right now because uh, it was a ten-year license. They weren't, oh. you know, they weren't bootlegged or official licensed CDs, and uh, so it was uh, 1993 to 2003. And at that point, they uh, were taken off the market, and so you know they became collectors' items. Wow, you can find them on yeah. eBay, Amazon now, though. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah. And they really did set the bar for what a new wave compilation should be. For those of you out there who may be listening that aren't familiar, go check them out. And we'll, we'll post the track list, too, on our Facebook page. But six volumes, 12 tracks each. There's a lot of deep cuts on there. 
there was a lot of one thing I I found was really cool. A lot of hard to find single mixes, um, which were not readily available in the CD era. So 72 tracks, 71 of which were great. And the other one was Oh Yeah by Yellow. <laughs> no, it, it was Come On Eileen yeah. by Dexy's Midnight yeah. Runner. That, that's on no. volume four. Stay away. The, yeah. the one I don't like is the After the Fire version of De Classic, oh, because I was friends yeah. with Falco. But, but the one thing that we did do is we always, I always went for the extended mix. If I could get a 12-inch mix in there, then I would put that on the record because I thought that was so important because, like you said, the single was available, the single could be heard on the radio, but to have the 12-inch mix, the one that you danced to in the clubs, the one that you met that hot chick on that Friday night to, that's the one that you uh, want the memories brought back. So I would always try and get the uh, the longer version. So now we know your song. So like I have Mexican radio. That's the song that I would sooner eat my hand than listen to it again. (laughs) And Oh Yeah by Yellow kind of, you know, fits into that too. Oh, yeah. Greg has Come On Eileen. Bueno, I don't really know what your song is. So is is your song, Richard, after the fire's version of Der Komasar? Yeah, absolutely. I, I just roll over to, to that one when I hear it because I, I just remember Falco. I mean, he was getting all the money from it because he wrote it, but he didn't want the money. He wanted to break in uh, America. And suddenly after the fire, we're getting uh, so much more play than he was. And he was so upset. So when uh, Vienna Calling came out and uh, Rock Me Amadeus, he was thrilled. But he used to come to all my club gigs and he was a, he was a great looking uh, German, uh, well, Austrian guy, German speaking and the girls just loved him and uh he was he couldn't have been more thrilled when uh, he followed up the commissar with a hit you know because he was so worried that that was his one shot and it was taken away by uh ironically someone who would shovel money at him because he was getting the publishing but he wasn't getting the uh, credit yeah and he's dead now unfortunately he died yes. uh working Car on album in the caribbean yeah exactly yeah. i remember when he passed away yeah good guy I- and I remember I the videos. Great. It looked like he made it at the mall. Remember yeah, the, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no budget. Yeah, particularly the first one for Tacoma. Yes. Just run, running against a green screen, you know. It was pretty cool, though. But that's what was so cool about, you know, the early 80s when everything was taking off. It was kind of DIY, but I don't know. It was just there was something special about it. And maybe I'm nostalgic, but I think that we could use more of that now. I guess. You're right. It was like the wild frontier. The wild west. It, it, it was a yeah. blank canvas and anything could happen. And that was like thrilling. Kings of the wild frontier. You know, I was talking with, uh, to name drop here, I was just talking with Kathy Valentine three days ago for a podcast for Sirius. And we were talking about videos. And I said how, you know, the, the Go-Go's videos are just a moment in time to take you back. You know, they're rolling in the fountain in Beverly Hills and stuff like that. And she said, oh, it's because we didn't have the budget. She said, we'd love to have run through the jungles like Duran Duran did, but we just didn't have the budget. And she said, you know, when we shot these videos, we were like cringing that, oh my gosh, it looks so cheap compared with the stuff coming out of the UK. And she said, but now she said, it takes us back to that exact time. And we see the fashions that we were wearing. Then we weren't dressed by wardrobe consultants. And we were actually driving in regular cars through Beverly Hills and through Los Angeles. And she said, now we're really proud of those videos. It was real. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Well, Richard, you probably know this story for the cover of Beauty and the Beat. They returned those towels. Yeah, they didn't have the money. <laughs> they didn't have the money. And so their manager was saying, you know, they were tucking in the tags and they didn't want to mess them up. And they returned the towels that are on that album cover. That wow. is kind of cool. Me yeah. and the Go-Go's were the same. <laughs> I do that with yeah. my clothes. There we go. You wear them once. The Us Festival. That was the 83 that I saw you there, Richard. Yeah, I was. I, I loved. I went to both oh us festivals and absolutely loved them. They would. People often say to me, "What's your all-time favorite concert?" Yeah. And I said, "Listen, just put me in a time machine, and you can set it. You can set set it to either of the us festivals or Depeche Mode 101 at the Rose Bowl. I don't care which. Just send me back to one of those three. Yep. That's right, June 13th, 88. Yep. And uh, you know, I don't have. The one I have those three as my all-time favorites. So uh, you're absolutely right, Dave. That was a fantastic, fantastic weekend. Your time machine, your rules. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That new new wave day was incredible. Friday, September third in '82. That was with Gang of Four, the Ramones, English Beat, Oingo Boingo, B52s, Talking Heads, and the Police. 
that day I'll never mm. forget. No, that was great. Yeah, that was fantastic. Yep. I saw you up there. I can't remember if it was 82 or 83. You were talking to Terry. No, I remember one of those times. That was 83. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, I got to know Steve Wozniak uh, at the first one because it, you know, K Rock put it on the New Wave Day. Yep. And then he came into my show and then came on the air with me. And we did this whole thing where people called in and uh, suggested what bands they wanted to play at the Us Festival. And he sat there with a paper and pen, wrote them all down. And he goes, okay, I'll get them. Okay. <laughs> and it was like, wow, you know. And then he got, uh, when he booked Bowie, uh, Bowie wanted a million dollars because oh. Bowie was on the, the road with the Serious Moonlight tour. And Steve Wozniak was such a huge Bowie saw, uh, fan that he said, absolutely, I'll pay it. But unfortunately, he didn't realize that he had a favored nations clause in for five of the bands that no one could get paid more than they were getting paid, including Van Halen. And those bands were getting between two and 300,000. And suddenly they all had to get paid a million. So uh, his budget went right through the roof overnight. And he said, but it was worth it. I had the money at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was a great show. I'll never forget that. I was probably 30 feet to 40 feet from the the stage all night. Wow. Yep. Good times, man. Did yep. you turn around and look at the hill behind because they were setting bonfires? Yeah, they were. It's the first time I'd ever seen that, that people were burning, uh, you know, making bonfires in the open. And then that kind of became a tradition for bands like Green Day to have it, you know, on the uh, Irvine Meadows lawn that you were mm-hmm. allowed to make a bonfire. But I remember that the US Festival it looked like a giant army was camped out. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was a fun. It was a fun weekend. I can tell you that. Then I went yep. by myself, so nobody wanted Say to that. go. Yeah, it was like twenty <laughs> bucks. But that ticket would now be what three hundred fifty, six hundred fifty bucks. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. Oh yeah, oh. easy. And as a Beatles nut, let me just ask you: Did you enjoy the movie yesterday? <sighs> well, I did enjoy the movie, but the problem I had with the movie yesterday was if the power goes out and people are going to forget anybody, why couldn't it have been Ed Sheeran? <laughs> <laughs> short movie then (laughs) I I actually loved it I actually had tears in my eyes three quarters of the way through I won't say what happened but the uh, when he meets somebody it was uh, to me it was uh, an amazing moment and I'm a huge huge Richard Curtis fan who uh, oh yeah yeah and uh, I just thought it couldn't have been any better no it actually was a really good movie yeah, I had an idea in my mind for the longest time for uh, a story about someone who goes back in time to the beginning of the 80s and stumbles across all the bands as they're starting out and signs them all up. And suddenly the same person is managing Duran Duran and Depeche Mode and all that. And Duran are like, oh, God, I can't even think of a song. I'm so hungry. And you're like, um, okay, that gives me an idea for a song. <laughs> and uh, you, you know, you you own all the publishing. But when I when I first heard about yesterday, I thought, oh shoot, my idea's been stolen. And then I watched <gasps> it and I went, oh no, it's better than anything I could have ever done. I loved it. I loved it. So, so yeah. well, it is fantastic. But speaking yeah. of tears in my eyes, uh, I'm looking forward to the Peter Jackson Get Back. Movie. Oh yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, when I saw the preview of that and the, the film footage just is so beautifully restored and the Beatles look like they're having so much fun, which of course is counter to what we saw in the let it be movie. I was bawling like a little baby. So, yeah. And it looked like it was shot yesterday. I mean, yes. the quality of that promo is fantastic. And by the way, if we're talking about documentaries, the one out there to watch right now is how do you mend a broken heart? The Bee Gees. Oh, yeah. It is unbelievably great i mean fantastic one of the best i've ever watched i agree yeah i haven't seen it yet but i have to watch that one i was watching some rock docs last night if you even have a passing interest in the bgs and i'm a i'm a huge bgs fan as well Mm -hmm. so it's phenomenal and what what a uh, production team behind it frank marsh marshall and kathleen kennedy i mean the, they did you know uh, indiana jones and so many other wow. movies like that you know to have them at the helm you can understand why the movie works so well and barry gibb is literally hands on throughout the entire movie and opens and closes it it, it couldn't have been I, I can't think of it being done any better than it was it was fantastic yeah excellent <laughs> you know richard you bring up rock stars do we have any rock stars from today or is that something that's now that everybody has their own social media has kind of, it's kind of cliche now. Yeah, That's a very good question. I mean, 
obviously, uh, it, it seems almost that the females are the biggest rock stars, you know, Beyonce and J-Lo and stuff like that. But uh, are there any real rockers out there, that yeah. rock stars? Yeah, because it used to be, you know, it's like... Crazy. You know, like, you know, womanizing, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And now it's like people, oh, well, you know, we do kale when we bring a yoga instructor on tour <laughs> with us. And it's like, what happened? What happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, David you know? Lee Roth would not be happy with that tour. No. <laughs> Michael Hutchins. I mean, come on, that guy, he must yeah. have been a riot. I mean, I know you're good friends with him, but must have been a riot. And um, where are these guys? Michael would walk into a room and you could hear the sound of panties dropping. It was just crazy. It was, you know, he had that, he had that charisma. You could be the most famous, the richest, the best looking guy in the world. And he walked in and you just disappeared. He just, he, yeah. was, he, he had that mat, you know, God had reached down and touched him on the top of the head and said, Hey, I'm giving it to Brad Pitt and I'm giving it to you. Yeah. yeah I, I was in a target with Gavin Rossdale in Tempe. Oh, wow. And walking through. Now, he wasn't even famous yet. This is just when I think it was their second day in America. 16 Stone was uh, just released and they were meeting their tour manager for that tour uh, that day. And we went to Target. And I remember so he wasn't even famous yet, but he just had that look. He had that it. And I remember never feeling so invisible because Mm -hmm. every girl who's walking in that Target stopped and went, you know, just (laughs) had a stroke. And he was, nobody knew who he was. And then that night, of course, he's up on stage and then he does his song Glycerine, which just him and his guitar. You want to talk about hearing panties hit the floor. That was crazy. If you ever saw that. And I was like standing right on stage watching that going, wow, this is never going to happen to me. You know, because it was like, (laughs) wow, Gavin Rosdale, but amazing artist that guy is. Yeah, I know. It's more than one in a million. You know, it's it's one in 50 million that are that lucky, you know, that are that blessed, that are talented and have the look, have the charisma and that certain je ne sais quoi. You know, it's crazy. Somebody will come around. It's just a matter of who and when. Absolutely. It was like, who was going to be the next Beatles? Who knew it was going to be, you know, a black American kid? You know, I mean, Michael Jackson. I mean, he, he, he had everything. He was incredible. Uh, who's going to be the next one? Nobody knows, but there will be a next one. There but Richard, aren't, aren't you excited for after COVID? I think there's going to be a before COVID and after COVID. Right now, there's a lot of people staying at home, staying safe, but there's a lot of people who maybe never would have written songs or maybe studied how to write a song, and now they have all this time, and we're going to hopefully get some incredible music on the other end of this. That's my hope. Let's hope so. Let's hope there is, uh, you know, definite sunshine at the end of the tunnel. Never mind the light. I would love that. Yes. Stay safe, everybody. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're right. We had albums this year that were a direct result of the quarantine. Nobody was planning on uh, on a new Paul McCartney album this year or two Taylor Swift albums or whatever it would be. These unfavorable circumstances have created some beautiful art. And what I'm excited about is there's that kid out there who picked up that guitar. Mm -hmm. But I just think that there's a lot of kids out there that are picking up, you know, maybe an instrument or, you know, online learning how to do something. And I'm just so excited to see what comes of this. I think you're right. What about that girl drummer that took Dave, Dave Grohl down last week? Really? Wow. Yeah. I I will say one thing, though. Uh, I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but when it comes to the quarantine, be extra careful. I just saw today that Kevin, formerly of Kevin and Bean, mm-hmm. has COVID for the second time. Whether it's come back or whether he's caught it a second time, his immunity had lapsed, who knows? But Kevin right now is uh, laid up and, uh, you know, sicker than a dog. And uh, please, please, please be careful. And for any idiots out there that think it's just the flu, still, I, I'm lost for words. Yeah, stay out there, so, stay safe. Yeah, exactly. You know, though, Richard, though, uh, you know, with everything that's going on, what's one of your most, I mean, you've, you know, everybody, you've met everybody, you've done everything. We've already talked about that. And first of all, Bands Reunited, love that show. Still watch uh, episodes on YouTube with it. I just really enjoy that show. Um, mm. But what are, what's probably the most, un, you know, surreal moment you've had in your career? Oh, um, I'm sure there's a bunch think. of them. Well, before I was Richard Blake, when I was Dick Shepard and I was DJing mobiles, uh, mobile parties, you know, uh, I, w- I started doing a bunch of celebrity ones because of the English accent I kind of lucked into. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did one for Barbara Streisand and that opened all the doors. Suddenly all the celebrities wanted whoever uh, DJed uh, Barbara Streisand's party. So I did one for Zsa Zsa Gabor 
And it was one of the most memorable nights of my life because she is one of the stilt houses on the canyons, you know, with, with several levels, but it's built out over the over the canyon on stilts. And I was in the lower level in the game room. They pushed the pool table over to the side and I put my speakers and DJ gear in there and all that. And I was just down there by myself for two hours while people were eating dinner. And this uh, kid came down and said, can I look through your music? And I said, sure. And so Michael Jackson went through all my singles and pulled up a few. And then uh, he asked if I could play a track from uh, Destiny, which was a just released album. And I said, sure. And I couldn't play it loud because they were people upstairs so i said to michael i can't play your music quiet michael but he got out on the floor and he was practicing his dance moves to it and uh, i was just sitting there going you know because i grew up with the jackson five before they became the jacksons and here i am watching michael jackson just dancing in front of me and working out (laughs) the moves for his upcoming tour and then he looks at me and he says do you um have a cassette player and i said yeah i got a panasonic down here and he goes i'll be right back and he ran out to his limo and he came back with a cassette and he said, can you put this in? And I said, sure. And he goes, it's, it's, it, it's a rough mix. Doesn't sound that good. And I said, I don't mind. No, no, I'm, you know, whatever you want to hear, I'm just kicking, kicking back here. And I put it on and I, I write in the book about this. I don't know if it was rock with you or just, uh, just uh, don't stop till you get enough. I can't remember which, but I put it on and I think it was rock with you because of the uh, horns that he wanted. And I, I played it and, and he was out there just listening. And then uh, he said, stop, stop, stop. And so I hit the pause and he goes, I don't like it. And I said, it sounds good. It, I, it sounds great. He said, we know we were recording it today. It said the horns need to be louder. They're mixed too low. And he said, if, when I point to you, can you turn the volume up? I said, well, I can't go too loud because charge us up upstairs. And he goes, just turn the volume up my point. I said, okay. So three times I rewound it and played it. And he pointed to me and turned the volume up. And he goes, that's the way it's going to be. I'm going to tell Quincy tomorrow. <laughs> and, and that was just a surreal moment. You know, when I look back at it, I was, I, I mean, I was thrilled at the time to be spending time with Michael Jackson. But in retrospect, it's like, I wish I could go back and tell Dick Shepard to be even more enthusiastic about it because it it was quite something. And then the party started and coming down the stairs is my all time favorite actor who I just wanted to be when I was a kid. And I I went up to him and I said, excuse me, can I just say hello to you? And he goes, of course you can. Why why do you want to say hello to me? And I said, well, I, I, I used to go to school with a, a wet armpit because of you. Why on earth would you have a wet armpit? Because of me. And I said, because I had the 007 shoulder holster and it was a water pistol that leaked. And I said, but I used to wear it every day. And he goes, you know, I had one of those. He said, but I never actually put water in it. He said, I used to collect all of the uh, stuff back in the early days. But thank you for saying that. And it was like, wow. And one night I met Michael Jackson and Sean Connery. And that was, it was just such a moment for me. I, I that, I'm that is a surreal talk one. About wow. Yeah. I mean, two of the greatest, you know, in their own fields ever. Are, are, are you thanked on off the wall for you turning up? Actually, uh, after that party, I started doing private parties for Michael Jackson. He had me go into his house on Havenhurst oh, wow. in Encino and I did a whole bunch of parties And then, uh, you know, I did the um, launch party for uh, Destiny and the Jackson's Victory Tour at uh, the uh, bank in Beverly Hills. It was on Entertainment Tonight and all that. I was in the in the um, vault with the Jackson five or the Jacksons, you know, and Mm -hmm. Epic made the S look like a five and uh, had all the lasers and and fog going. But though back in the 1979, it was the the lasers weren't like today. It was one little red laser going up and down through the fog. And, uh, but I've stayed friends with Michael. And then when Thriller came out, I've got it on my wall behind me right now. I'm pointing at it. I, I have, uh, assigned uh, the um, album from Michael and it, a picture of it's in the book. It says to Richard, thanks for all you did, Michael Jackson. And uh, so it was, it was an absolute thrill. He was such a nice, nice guy, but unfortunately, you know, torn apart by the people around him that only yeah. said yes to him, you know, and, and didn't ever say, Michael, you shouldn't do that. But there you go. There you go. Wow. That is, that is yeah. just real surreal. And surreal. I mean, it's just crazy. Oh, it is. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. 
hard to believe sometimes. And then you even have more than that. I mean, that's that's just the pinnacle. But I think that probably your second most surreal moment probably would pretty much trump anybody's super surreal moment if that is your best because that's pretty good. Yeah, that's a pretty. <laughs> I know. I, I, I I'm I'm boggled by it today. You know. I mean, I was. I I remember doing Barbara Streisand's party. I wasn't impressed at all because I didn't really play much Barbara Streisand in the discos. You know, if I'd have been doing Anita Ward's party, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> you can ring my bell. I would have been like, wow. But Barbara Streisand was like, ah. and then Neil Diamond comes in. Oh, yeah, Neil Diamond. Is like, But uh, that was the party that really launched me as a, you know, the, the mobile DJ, Dick Shepard, the mobile DJ, because it was um, Barbara Streisand's son, uh, uh, Jason Gould's bar mitzvah that I was DJing and it was her son with Elliot Gould and everyone who was everyone was there because it was Barbara Streisand and she just sure. had a hit with uh, Neil Diamond you don't bring me flowers and Neil Bogart was there so oh. he he brought down Donna Summer and Larry Hagman was there so I got to do the rap party for Dallas it was it was crazy it was just just crazy and she had the uh, three homes right above Paradise Cove in Malibu and at the end of a long cul-de-sac and she bought one and then bought the other two over the next couple of years so she could have a whole privacy. And she brought in a complete three-ring circus tent to have the party in outside on this uh, gigantic lawn. And it was just, just wild. But she was so nice to me. Everyone, you know, I, again, I write about this in the book. And I was DJing and she came up to me. She said, have you eaten yet? And I said, no. And she said, what would you like? And I, I, I said, well, what is there? And there was three different catering um, units there around each of the uh, the poles holding up the the big top. And one was uh, uh, Thai or Chinese. Uh, one was like French cuisine. And the other one was like hamburgers and stuff for the kids. And I said, I'd, I'd love the, the Chinese stuff if I could, please. And she brought it up to me herself. She <laughs> fixed the plate of food for me and brought it up. I was like, wow. So I what you're saying is this, this party was really low budget. And um, yeah. <laughs> people acted like, you know, they were all stuck up. That that's pretty cool. I know it was it was the opposite of what you would expect. You know, it, it's you know, you've, everyone's told that she's you know just the, the worst snob, and she could not have been nicer. She was just a just a sweetheart. So uh, you know, and and everyone there seemed to get along. You know, I mean, it was great. Everyone danced. That was the main thing for me. As long as they were dancing, I was I was happy. Yeah, that that story right there is why I always make sure and have my own experience when people tell me, okay, maybe I'm, I'll be guarded, but I don't believe, you know, just like you said, people, Bar Barbara Streisand, she's horrible. seems like the nicest person. It's your experience instead of everybody else's. And gosh. Yeah. And anybody. I'm sure that she has a bad day. It's just like all of us, you know, I sure. mean, if someone runs into you on a bad day, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person every day. It just means you, you're in a hurry to get to get to your house because you just had a phone call saying that your dog was sick or something like that. I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. I can't talk. I'm sorry. I've got to go. You know, oh, you're an asshole. No, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I've got an emergency. But then that, that, you know, follows you for the rest of your life. We've all got our ups and downs. You know, we, we you know, not everyone can be the same every single day because we're not robots. Well, I was going to say, I bet that you have that too. But I think a lot of people don't realize that someone who's famous, like Barbara Streisand, like you, is that everyone just wants just a few minutes of your time, but it's a constant few minutes of your time. And if you're in mm -hmm. a rush or have to be somewhere or this is the 15th time this happened today, you might be a little short. And then unfortunately, if that person, especially in this day and age of social media, then all of a sudden it gets out that you're a jerk or she's a jerk or she's impossible. Or, you know, you always hear all these stories. And um, I worked with the guy, like I was saying, uh, Dave Pratt, I heard all these horrible stories. Couldn't have met a nicer man who would get on his hands and knees so you could stand on his back to get you higher. And wow. so it was just like that same sort of thing. You know what I mean? It's like, I just don't believe what people tell me anymore. No, absolutely. And someone like Barbara Streisand is particularly if it's in a work environment, she's got such high standards and she, so much is expected of her that she's going to say, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. I need to redo this right now, even if it means bringing the orchestra back in or whatever. Uh, and you understand why, because she wants it to be good. It's like being on the radio. You want your show to be good. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, if you're a painter, you want, you want the finish to be good. You don't want to see the brush strokes. And uh, that doesn't mean you're, you know, a jerk about it. It's just like, no, I just, give me a few more minutes. I want it to be right. And, um, 
but people can misinterpret it. Well, Richard, why did you want to come to America so bad and leave your home? Sunshine, blue skies, California girls. Pretty much <laughs> sums it up. All right. Good answer. That's it. Yeah. Good answer. <laughs> this week, we are looking at our top songs off of Richard Blades, Flashback Favorites, Volumes 1 through 6. Great series. What do you remember most about this series when it first came out in 1993? When it first came out, I remember being told that we had to redo the artwork because I was wearing a K-Rock t-shirt thinking, oh, it'd be great for the station, you know, publicity. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kevin Weatherly took one look at it and said, nope, you got to get rid of the K-Rock logo. We can't oh. endorse anything. And then, right. of course, it became a big seller. And they went, well, okay, well, from now on. You always like that Monday morning quarterback, you know, oh, you can't do it. It won't be good for, wait a second. Yeah. Oh. Once they realized how you know popular it was, and also how um, well done it was, and I don't mean well done on my side. I mean Carl did a great job, and the uh, people at Capital and Sony did a great job with the distribution. They pressed it well; everything was good. It, I think you know the the powers that be at K Rock were worried it was going to be like you know a home pressed bootleg. Right. And they didn't want to be associated with that. But uh, it was always fun. I loved doing the the photo shoots. I had my uh, dog on, uh, I think, volume three, mm-hmm. beautiful little angel, love her. And uh, it was it, it was just so cool. And as I mentioned earlier, um, it, just to walk into a club and see the DJs playing from it, back when we would use uh, CDs in the clubs, it was just so flattering and, and touching to be a part of their particular night that they were doing. And I was, I was honored. Do you think that a lot of people felt that this was going to fail or it was going to be kind of a homegrown thing because they thought maybe the early, the early eighties music was done and over, but then they were surprised when there was this whole groundswell of people wanted to hear these songs again and were yearning for them. Oh, hundred percent. You're absolutely right. They really thought that uh, it had come and gone and uh, wouldn't stand the test of time. The one person who knew it would was no longer with us, unfortunately, to see it. And that's Rick Carroll, who started the whole format. He said to me in late 83, he said, Richard, one day there'll be radio stations all across America playing 80s music. He said it might be 20 years from now, but it's going to happen. And I was exactly like, right. nuts, you're nuts. <laughs> I was thinking, it, I, I thought it was just disposable pop. And, uh, and yet it's the most heard music anywhere at the moment. You walk, you know, you walk into an airport, you walk into a supermarket or whatever, and you hear the go-go's or you hear men at work or you hear culture club. It's, it's, it's crazy. I agree. I, yeah, I just think it's amazing. Yeah. Well, we all had that common experience of all knowing these songs and we all mm-hmm. have our own story, but we all remember where we were when we first saw MTV. Like I'll never forget when I first saw MTV, the very first video I saw was Roger Daltrey, Free Me. Horrible song. Who cares? The second song, though, The Clash, Rock the Casbah, changed my life. And that made me run to the record store. And then I got into The Clash. And that's when I was like 10, 11 years old. And that was my first experience with MTV. And we talked about this earlier, but that's what kids don't have nowadays. They just have streaming and they all watch, you know, the same thing or, you know, they maybe it just it seems harder to find new music and cool things than it was for us back in the day. No, absolutely. And what's the number one complaint at the moment? And that is Wonder Woman 84 blew it because they only had two songs in it, one of which you, can, you can't even hear, uh, from the 80s. Why call it Wonder Woman 84 and not play any music from the 80s? They just played Welcome to the Pleasure Dome from Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And somewhere in there, I don't think you can hear it because there's a car chase, is Gary Newman's cars. And in the credits, if you look, they've spelled Gary Newman wrong. <laughs> they spelled it N-E-W. M-A-N, not N-U. It's like th- whoever did the music supervision had no effing idea. I mean, you, you don't do an 80s. I mean, the, you do the 60s and you do the 80s, you've got to put music in there. I mean, it tells a story. You know, you look at movies like Forrest Gump, which has so much 60s music in it, mm-hmm. and it just sets the scene. Why not put 80s music in it? I mean, they did with Stranger Things, and it works so well. And I, there's a lot of times I have a 15-year-old son. And I was one time playing Trans X, living on video, and he comes running downstairs. Is that new? So I think that a great song's a great song, and if it stands the test of time, like a lot of this music does, my son's in love with a lot of this stuff, and I don't know why it's not used more in movies. Like, why don't they get Richard Blade to do, you know, Wonder Woman 84 and get the good music in there? 
I would love to have accepted the movie sucked. I would have been embarrassed to be associated with it. <laughs> uh, I loved the first one. I'm not, I'm not uh, someone who puts down movies uh, offhand because I know how much work it is and how many literally hundreds and hundreds of people were involved in it. I was just so incredibly disappointed. The wife and I watched it the night it premiered on HBO Max. You know, we had planned dinner and we sat down. We both loved the first Wonder Woman. And uh, about 30 minutes in, she's looking at me and I'm looking at her and I'm like, well, we'll get through it. <laughs> and it was just awful. And yet, you know, everyone in it was good. It was, and I, I read a review um, online. Someone said it felt like each scene was written by a different writer who hadn't met the next writer. You know, it was just, they, they wrote a scene and just threw it out there. It had no continuity and it wasn't exciting. It was, it was just boring. And the action, there was only three action scenes in the whole movie and <sighs> they were crappy. It was, uh, it was just awful, but Hey, it made money and they greenlit a third one. So let's hope, uh, you know, the first and the third are good. Yeah. Just get rid of the, whoever worked on the second fire them. Well, let's do re, yeah. let's get it done. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really. I'm not just saying this. We talked about surreal moments a little bit ago. Uh, this is a surreal moment for me being in alternative music where I started back in 93. Thank you so much for doing the only three lads podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure to be with only three lads and you guys have been absolutely great. And I look forward uncle Greg to uh, talking with you and Brett some more Dave. I know I'm going to be talking with a lot of Dave Buenos always there for me. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate only three lads. You guys have been fantastic. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Now I'm going to take down the Christmas decorations. <laughs> All right, well, good luck with that. And thank you for, for spending so much time with us. Usually this doesn't take this long, but uh, we, uh, we all had a million questions for you. And thank you for giving of your time. Oh, I'm, I'm my pleasure. I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. Have a great night. Say hi to the wifey for me. The theme music is Frequency, written and performed by yours truly, Brett Vargo. Any other music in this episode is presented solely for purposes of review, examination, and news reporting. If you like what you hear, go to your record store and pick up the LP, CD, cassette, or 8-track, or stream it if you're one of those newfangled fancy pants. If we're lucky enough to still have these artists with us, go out and see some live music. For the latest updates, join the O3L community at facebook.com slash only3lads. We want to hear from you. And while you're at it, click on the Shop Now link for the coolest threads. Until next time, thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.